I've been looking forward to being with you. I appreciate the invitation, and um, I'm excited. I really am. I hope that you are, too, about this week. We're going to be talking about a crucified life. And if I could do anything this week, what I want to do, what I want to accomplish is this. I want to help you to develop a closer and deeper commitment to Christ, a better relationship with Him, and I want, you to, I want to help you grow. I really do, no matter where you are. Maybe you're just thinking about Christianity. Maybe you're wondering, what is this all about? Maybe you've been a Christian for years, for decades. All of us can learn from the commitment that Jesus expects of us. All of us can grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It is so easy to be just superficially a Christian. It's easy to do. We can be, quote-unquote, Christians with a minimum of effort, with instant gratification, with a minimum of discomfort. But that's not what Jesus talked about discipleship being. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Are you there? Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if you look at that word disciple, he said this to his disciples. What is a disciple? This is a Bible class. A follower, an understudy, a learner. Excellent. So when you think about what a disciple is, the Greek word is mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, mathetes. The word Matthew literally means disciple, follower. So when Matthew's mother named him Matthew, she was saying, I want him to be a disciple. I want him to be a follower. She didn't know about Christ, but that was what he ended up being, wasn't it? And so mathetes, a follower, a learner, and understudy. Somebody who watches an example, somebody who watches an exemplar, and then tries to copy, tries to imitate, tries to be like that person. So when Jesus is saying in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, it's fascinating to me in the first place that he gives this statement to disciples. Just because I've chosen to follow Jesus doesn't mean that I fully have grasped yet what that entails. There are still things to learn. There is still growth that needs to take place in my life. And what Jesus is doing in Matthew 16, verse 24, is he's asking his disciples for greater commitment. He's asking them to understand how far this road goes and how difficult and how costly this journey will be. We need as Christians to spend time thinking about the meaning of commitment, the meaning of discipleship. And what I want us to do with our study this morning is this. I want us to begin way back in verse 13 of this chapter. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And I want us to look at in context what Matthew says about the challenge of Jesus. He's talking about being a follower. He's talking about being a disciple. He's talking about what it means to be committed as a, as a disciple. And Jesus says, follow me. Discipleship in the first place is about a person. When you look at verses 13 through 20, what is discipleship all about? Jesus says, discipleship is all about a person. So if you back up with me to Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus begins the discussion with this. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? People had been following Jesus. They had been 
watching Jesus. They had been learning from Jesus. And so Jesus decides that it's time to stop and to ask the people who were closest to him, his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there are a number of answers that are given. If you look at verse 14, so they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay? So these are the answers that a lot of people are giving about who Jesus is. By the way, did you know that Herod is the one that said Jesus was John the Baptist? If you go back to Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. And, and Herod was the one that had put him to death and obviously felt a great deal of guilt about that. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What I think we need to think about when we consider the things that others were saying about Jesus is this. Jesus is glorious. He is amazing. He amazed and astonished people. And they had to stop and try to figure out who is this person? Who is this man? You know, when you looked at Jesus, if all you wanted to see was a man, that was all you would see. In Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, the people who knew Jesus and saw him grow up, they remembered him as a carpenter's son, and they remembered his brothers and sisters, and they said, where did this man get these things? Isn't this the carpenter's son? We remember his family. We know who this guy is. He's just a man. But you couldn't deny the amazing things that Jesus did. You couldn't deny the glorious words, the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. On one occasion, they sent people to arrest Jesus, the Pharisees did. They sent the Roman soldiers. And the soldiers went, and they listened to him teach, and they came back empty-handed. And they said, well, why didn't you, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And the soldiers said, John 7, verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. He's amazing. When we hear him teach, he's impressive. We hear him reasoning about the word of God and teaching things that, that really cut to the heart of what's wrong with people and how we can be redeemed by God. And so in John seven forty six, they were amazed by his words. But not only that, people were amazed by his works. As you read through Matthew, chapters 1 through 15, Matthew shows you characteristically when Jesus does a miracle, people are astonished and amazed. Who is this? Who is this man that can do these mighty works? Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. So, as we think about discipleship, as we think about commitment to Jesus, brothers and sisters and friends, as I read Matthew, one of the questions that I need to wrestle with is this. Who do I say that Jesus is? He's amazing in all that he does, and we need to see his glory. We need to read what the Word teaches about him continually. We need to be amazed by the, the works and the gracious ways and the judgment that he rendered. We need to be amazed by his priorities and his values. These things were not done in a corner, Paul would later say, Acts 26, verse 26. And the Bible says that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth, John chapter 1, verse 14. So discipleship, it's about a person. Who do men say that I am? Well, some people said that Jesus was John the Baptist. Some people said that he was Elijah. By the way, that was a matter of prophecy because Malachi and Isaiah had both prophesied that an Elijah would come, someone who would be a forerunner, someone who would usher in the Messiah. And so some people were saying maybe he's Elijah. Some people would say maybe he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They knew there was something special about Jesus. Then Jesus 
more pointedly asked. Look at verse 15. But who do you say that I am? This week, we're talking about living a crucified life. Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, other people can answer. I can stand up and I can preach a sermon and I can talk about who Jesus is. And I might believe those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you choose to believe those things. You have to decide in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life, you have to make a decision about who Jesus is. And you know, Peter gives what we call the great confession here in Matthew chapter 16. Peter, of course, characteristically the one that would always speak up. Peter says, I know, I know, I've got the answer. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And we read that, and we say, well, of course. We know who Jesus is. We believe what Peter believes, and we don't see sometimes the risk. We don't see sometimes the faith that it took for Peter to say that. Because what Peter was doing was he was launching out in faith, believing that the things that he saw Jesus doing, those things meant, those things pointed to the fact that he really is divine. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. You know, some people have pointed out that Jesus was in the area of Caesarea Philippi where there were a lot of idols. It was a place that was known for idolatry. And, and so maybe Peter said, you're the son of the living God in contrast to all of these false gods that were around. But you're the son. You're divine. You're amazing, Jesus. And so Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is more than just a man. Who do you say that Jesus is? When we look at Jesus, when others looked at him, maybe that's all they saw, just a man. When we look at Jesus, we can see that he's more than just that. The Bible describes Jesus' conception as being the Holy Spirit coming together with, with a human. And, and the Bible says that both God and man came together in one being, in one person. That Jesus is human in the sense that he shares in all of our humanity, all the things that make us a human, he, he, he shares those things. Hebrews chapter 2 describes that. But the Bible also describes Jesus as being divine. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt in him. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Who do you say that Jesus is? If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, it's about a person. Let me say this. By way of application, sometimes we allow discipleship to become about something other than Jesus. We sometimes, in our modern day, we allow discipleship to become about following a person. There's a preacher or there's a writer that I really respect and I really love, and I love to hear him speak, and I love to hear, I love to see what he writes. And, and he has answers to questions that I have about the Bible. And sometimes we can end up, if we're not careful, following a person, a human, rather than following Jesus. Sometimes we allow discipleship to be about being a part of God's church. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And we attend and we, we come to services and we worship and we're doing all these things that the Bible says are good to do. They're, they're right to do. It's good for me to be in fellowship with the people of God. But we can be in fellowship with the people of God and really our discipleship is more about that than it is about following Jesus. 
And so Jesus begins this discussion on discipleship and commitment by saying, who do you say that I am? It's important that you have that answer in your heart. It's important that you have that answer in your mind. I am following a person, not a philosophy, not just an idea, not just a concept, not just some kind of structured organization. I am following Jesus Christ because I believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. When we talk about discipleship, we should never forget it's about a person. Any questions, any comments? Look at what Peter Peter says to Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. What Jesus means by that is, Peter, you're looking at the things that my Father has revealed. You're looking at my miracles. You're looking at my signs. You're looking at my words. And you're drawing this conclusion based on the things that have been revealed by my Father. You're not just looking as a man looks. And then in verse 18, Jesus says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When we talk about discipleship and we talk about it being about a person, brothers and sisters and friends, Matthew 16, verse 18 needs to come to our minds. If I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, it is also about his body, the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, talking about the confession that Peter had made, upon this confession that I am divine, who I am matters, I will build my church, singular. Jesus did not promise to build many churches. He didn't say that he was going to come and create a number of organizations, all with different views and different ideas about what must I do to be saved and different ways of worship and different ways of being organized. Jesus said, I've come to build my church. And if I want to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, not only does it matter who I say he is, it also matters what I believe his body is. What is his body? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the church is his body. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he is divine, he is glorious, and he has created a body, the church. And everyone who obeys the gospel is added to that group, Acts 2, verse 47. Discipleship is found in community with others. In personal Bible studies with people, I often talk about this. The popular notion today is that I can be a disciple, I can be a follower of Jesus, but I don't have to have the church. I don't have to be a part of a group. And my my question to people that would say something like that is this. What are you going to do with all the one another passages in Scripture? Scripture says we ought to love one another, John 13, 34, and 35. Scripture says we ought to be kind to one another. It says we ought to be hospitable to one another. It says that we ought to forgive one another. It says that we ought to bear with one another in love. It says that we ought to treat one another with honor. The Bible tells us all kinds of one another passages, gives us all kinds of one another passages. And my question for people is this. Who are the one another's that are being mentioned in Scripture? It's the church. It's other Christians. And I would kindly point out that If I want to be a disciple of Jesus, and if I want to follow his teachings, and if I want to obey his word, I'm going to have to be around the one another's that are mentioned in Scripture. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. It's about discipleship. And notice this. As he continues in verse 19, not only is it about the church, it's about the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom to heaven. 
uh, of key, key, uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says to Peter. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus has a church. He has a kingdom. The people who belong to the church belong to the kingdom. The people who belong to the kingdom belong to the church. The entrance requirements are the same. The cost, the price of purchase is the same. We're part of the kingdom that Jesus has created. And so discipleship, it has to do with who Jesus is. It has to do with the church that he built. It has to do with the kingdom that he established. All those things are true when it comes to following him. So discipleship is first and foremost about a person. Who do I say Jesus is? But then second, as you look at this passage in Matthew chapter 16, look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus talks about discipleship. He talks about it being about him. And then in verses 21 through 23, discipleship is, secondly, about a mission. It's about a mission. So if you're taking notes, it's about a person, verses 13 through 20. It's about a mission, verses 21 through 23. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, that's a textual marker in the book of Matthew. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to talk to them about something new, something that he hadn't been talking about as much before. And look at what he's going to say in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. From that time, Jesus began to talk about this. Now, before you move on and forget and overlook what Jesus just said, stop and contemplate his words. I'm teaching back at Katy where I preach. I'm teaching the book of Judges on Wednesday nights. And one of the things that's amazing about the book of Judges is that every time there's a battle in the book of Judges, God always tells everybody, who's supposed to lead the battle, what the troop strength is supposed to be, where the battle's going to be fought, what the outcome is going to be. God always does that in advance. It's amazing. God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Look at Jesus and what he just did in verse 21. Jesus told us where he's going. I'm going to Jerusalem. The location is specific. You see that? Not only that, but he tells us who the antagonists are going to be. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Some have pointed out that that may just be a way of summing up the Sanhedrin. The leaders of Israel. Chief priests, elders, and scribes. So Jesus knows where he's going. He knows who his antagonists are going to be. Number three, he knows the outcome of this conflict. What's the outcome, Jesus? You're the king. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one that we follow. You're going to build a church. You're going to build a kingdom. It's going to be great. And Jesus says, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer many things from them, not just a few things. And not only am I going to suffer, but I am going to be killed. And then I'm going to be raised the third day. What's the outcome going to be? Jesus says, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. That's my mission. I know where I'm going, I know who the antagonists are going to be, and I know what the outcome is. And by the way, Jesus also gives us the ultimate, the epilogue, if you want. The epilogue. He says, on the third day I will be raised. 
So that's the mission that Jesus sets forth. And that doesn't jive with what Peter and the apostles thought the Messiah ought to be doing. Incidentally, in verse 20, Jesus had said, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. And I've puzzled over those words for years. Mark does a lot more of that if you've read Mark's account. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. You want to know, by the way, one of the reasons why Jesus says, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ? At least in this particular passage, one of the reasons he says that is because the apostles still don't have a full grasp of what the Messiah is all about. They still don't understand the kingdom. They still don't understand the cross. They still don't understand the the cost that's going to have to be paid for the purchase of men's souls. They don't understand all that. And so for them to go around and tell everybody, we found the Messiah, we found the Christ, everybody come and listen to him, they've got the complete wrong picture of what his mission is all about. And Peter demonstrates this for us in verse 22. The Bible says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. Now, I like the fact that Peter took him aside. So, he's not going to stand up in front of the apostles necessarily. Just just come over here. We've got a friendship and, and Jesus, I need to talk to you. Far be it from you. This is not the destiny of the Messiah. This is not what we expect that God's Son, the Christ, the Divine One, is going to be. This is not what we're looking forward to. And look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The word Satan means adversary, literally. So when we talk about the devil, when we talk about Satan, his name literally means adversary, the one who is against us. And Jesus uses that term to describe Peter, one of his dearest friends and one of his closest disciples. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That had to hurt. Peter launched out in faith and said something that other people were not willing to say about Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the divine one. Peter said that. And now Peter launches out again and says, Jesus, this shouldn't happen. I I don't think this should be the mission. I don't think this should be what we do. Get behind me, Satan. When we think about the mission of Jesus, he came to this earth and there is a clear pattern. If you're taking notes, this is important to write down. Here's the pattern that Jesus lays out in the Gospel of Matthew. The pattern is this. Number one, I'm going to Jerusalem. Number two, I'm going to die on a cross. Number three, then I'm going to the nations. And when you read the Great Commission after his resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 18, 19, and 20, what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of every nation. That's the pattern. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the nations. That's the pattern. That's the mission. Peter says, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus was completely in control. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to accomplish. No second guessing, no hand wringing. And when he says, get behind me, brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus is in the lead. If we're going to be disciples, we need to get behind him. We need to make sure that we're following him. What's the mission? The mission is to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, 
and then after that to go to the nations. What Jesus is doing in discipleship, listen carefully, Jesus is inviting us to share in the work that he came to do. He's inviting us to follow him. He went and he paid the cost for all humanity to, die, to, to, to be redeemed, to have forgiveness. He paid the price for us. And now Jesus is inviting you and me and everyone else, whosoever will, he's inviting us to come and to share in that mission. He's sending us to the nations. That's the context of Matthew 16, verse 24. Look at the passage. Matthew 16, 24. Then he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he goes on in verses 25, 26. He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yes, Jesus wants to redeem you. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to have a relationship with God. And he has done all the work that's needed for you to have those blessings. That is true. But what we often miss when we talk about discipleship is this. When I decide to follow Jesus, I am making a commitment. That's number three on your outline. Discipleship is about a person, it's about a mission, and it's about, number three, a commitment. I am making a commitment to Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to Jesus, not only do I want the blessings that you offer, not only do I want the forgiveness that only you can provide, not only do I need the blood that you shed for me, but I want to share in the work that God is doing in this world. I want to share in what you came to do. You know what Jesus came to this world to do? He came to this world to save souls and help people to have a relationship with God. Everything he did was about helping people to go to heaven one day. Everything he ever did was about saving souls and about blessing people. Everything he ever did was about reminding people of the great cost and consequences of sin and the great joy of knowing God. Everything he did was about that. And when he says to you and me, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, he's saying, I want you to come and to share in that mission as well. That's the commitment. Maybe you've heard the story of the chicken and the hog. The chicken got a bright idea one day and said, hey, let's make a breakfast of ham and eggs for the farmer. And the hog said, that sounds great, chicken, but hold on for just one minute. For you, a breakfast of ham and eggs is just a contribution. For me, it's total commitment. What Jesus is asking for in verse 24 of Matthew 16, he's asking for total commitment. He's asking for us to think about who he is. He's asking for us to think about what his mission is. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. Then I'm going to the nations. And he's saying, follow me. Be committed to me. Total commitment. And notice the terminology Jesus starts to use. It's terminology that might cause some people to pause and think, I really want to make sure that I understand what I'm getting myself into here. Because the terminology is, deny yourself. Take up your cross. He hadn't even told them that he was going to the cross specifically. That doesn't come until Matthew 17. 
where he actually mentions that he himself is going to the cross. And so when he said, take up your cross, they would have thought, that's a really odd way to put this because a cross is the most hideous, the most heinous way to kill someone that anybody's ever devised. And they saw crosses not infrequently around Israel because the Romans characteristically would put people on crosses. Deny yourself, take up your cross. He talks about losing our lives for his sake. He talks about losing our souls and gaining the whole world. He's using some really heavy language to describe discipleship. And so as you look at what discipleship is all about, it's a commitment. He's beginning to teach the disciples a really critical lesson. And the lesson is this. Brothers and sisters and friends, it is a precious thing to suffer with Christ. When you and I follow Jesus closely enough, when we really participate in his mission to go into all the world and to save souls, when that's what we're about, we're going to start to suffer for the very same things that Jesus suffered for. Did you know that? The darkness hates the light. The darkness wants to stamp out the light. And just like Jesus was the light of the world, you and I are supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so it's a precious thing to be able to suffer with Jesus. Think about this. When you read through the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm going through Jerusalem to the cross to the nations. Come follow me. Come be a part of the work. Come save souls. Go to the nations. Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. And you find people in the New Testament saying things like this. Got your Bible? Open to Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles, who at first had said, Far be it from you, Lord, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die. Very same apostle, Peter. The Bible says that they are beaten, they are commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, verse 40 of Acts chapter 5. And then in verse 41 it says, they departed from the presence of the council, doing what? Rejoicing. What are they rejoicing about? Acts 5.41, what does it say? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In other words... What happened to these apostles on this occasion was that they followed Jesus and they proclaimed him so faithfully that they suffered shame because of him, because of their association with him, because of their obedience to him. They suffered for him. And they rejoiced that that was the case because they realized we're taking up our cross and following him. We're doing what he commanded of us, what he asked of us. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 17. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. I think we do injustice to the Word of God when we think about discipleship only about me, only individually. When I'm the only one that it matters to. If I follow Jesus, that's fine. But if not, what business is it of anybody else? No, discipleship is about the mission and the work of God in this world to save souls, to bring sinners to be reconciled to him. And in Romans chapter 8, 
Look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, Romans 8, 17, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now watch this. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And then Paul goes on in verse 18 and says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, it's worth it. It's worth it to walk with Christ and to suffer with Christ and to carry my cross and to follow him. It's worth it to do those things because the sufferings that we endure are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's worth it. Jesus calls us to commitment. He calls us to follow him. He calls us to take up our cross and be a part of the work that he came into this world to accomplish. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 10. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. Paul says, here's what I want more than anything else. You and I need to stop and ask ourselves sometimes, is this what I really want? Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know him. Who's the him he's talking about in Philippians 3.10? Christ. I want to know him. Not only do I want to know him, I want to know the power of his resurrection. So far, so good. You know, the Bible says that when we're baptized, that we die to self, we die to sin, that we're buried with Christ in that watery grave. And the Bible says we're raised by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We are raised spiritually to walk in newness of life. And so when Paul talks about the power of his resurrection, he looks somewhat back to what happened to Jesus and his own baptism. But he's also looking forward because there's a great day coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then he says, Philippians 3.10, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to be conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What do you want, Paul? What's your goal in your life, in your ministry, in your work? What are you really all about? Paul says, the thing that I want more than anything else is I want to know Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings and be conformed to his death. That's what I want more than anything else. I want to be so much like the Savior I want to be so close to him that the same things that caused him to suffer start to cause me to suffer too. Because when I do that, I'm suffering constructively. I'm suffering creatively. I'm suffering in a way that brings honor and glory to God. It shows how much God is worth. It shows the greatness of God in my life. This is how much God matters. This is how glorious he is. When we suffer with Christ... We may well save souls. We always bring glory and honor to God, and we show his worth. So when Jesus says, follow me, it's an invitation not just to pattern your life and stop walking in your own ways and stop doing things that are destructive to you and start doing things that God says are right. It's an invitation into the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus does not need our help to redeem or save souls. He doesn't need our help to do the work that he did on the cross. What he did at the cross can save everybody. But what Jesus does want is he wants us to come and to walk with him and to participate with him 
in the mission of going into all the world, to all the nations, and being part of God's work. That's discipleship. That's what following him is all about. He's worth following, by the way. You know, sometimes we ask the question, I wonder if this is really worth it. You read Romans 8, 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. He is worth it. Even if we follow him to Jerusalem, even if we follow him to the cross, even when we follow him into the nations, and we go out of the neighborhoods and knock doors, and we open our mouth and we talk to our coworkers, and we visit with a friend or a family member who we know needs to know the Lord, when we do those things, we're taking up our cross and following him. Follow me. You have some options. By the way, do you have any questions, any comments so far? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Not a fan. You know, it's really easy being around religious people. It's really easy if I'm in this building on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night every week. It's really easy by my associations with others who are of like precious faith to start thinking that that's what the commitment involves. And that's all it involves. I do believe we need to fellowship with God's people. I do believe that we need to worship with God's people and encourage and build up the church in every way that we can. But if I don't see my discipleship and following Jesus as being about a person and about a mission and about a commitment, if I don't see those things in my own life, I'm missing it. I can't just be a casual observer. Have you heard about the 80-20 rule? In most congregations, the 80-20 rule goes like this. 80% of the people do the spectating, 20% of the people do the work. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's talking about total commitment. Here are your options. There are three. When it comes to carrying a cross, when it comes to following Jesus and being his disciple, option number one, I can run away. Nope, not for me. Not going to be a part of this. This looks tough. This looks difficult. Following Jesus, serving him, obeying him, imitating him, that's just too much to ask. It's what the disciples did at the cross. That was their option that they chose. Mark chapter 14, verse 50. They all forsook him and fled. Mark 14, 50. Option number two is this. When it looks like things are going to be difficult because of my obedience to God, I can start to fight. Peter pulled out a sword. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Pulled out a sword. Cut off the high priest's servant's ear. There have been a lot of speculations about how that exactly happened. Did the guy duck this way? And I don't know. If somebody was coming at me with a sword, I wouldn't duck this way. But I wasn't there. Whatever happened, Peter decided to fight. He decided that this was time to take a stand. And this was time to not give up any ground. This was time to make sure that everybody knew that Jesus didn't deserve what was about to happen to him. And there are some people when it comes to commitment and when it comes to discipleship that rather than submit and obey, they'd rather fight. I've known a lot of people who just weren't happy unless somebody was stirred up, unless somebody was really upset, unless somebody was fighting. That's what Peter was trying to do. This isn't fair. This isn't right. We need to get up in arms about this. And that's option number two. I could run away or I could fight. Mark chapter 14, verse, 57, or verse 47. Option number three, I could take up my cross and follow Jesus. I can watch his example 
I can learn from his attitude. Like a lamb before its shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. And I can walk with him into whatever difficulty life brings to me because I belong to him. And I can know that I'm suffering with him. It's a special thing to think about. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to stay here in Caesarea Philippi. You guys go on to Jerusalem. You guys go on and suffer. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus carried his cross, and he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's the commitment we're making. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his master in all things. If we truly follow Jesus, then we're eventually going to suffer for the same things that caused Jesus to suffer. That's what it means to live a crucified life. And so here's what we're going to do with the rest of our series this week. We're going to spend a few minutes in just a little while this morning looking at the cross itself, looking at what Jesus endured, and then reflecting on what lessons we need to glean as we think about a crucified life. Tonight, we're going to spend some time talking about what it means to deny yourself. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, deny yourself. How do you do that? It's a command. Just like repent and be baptized is a command, deny yourself is a command. So how do you do that practically? What does that look like? Tomorrow night, Lord willing, Monday night, take up your cross. Here's a question. A cross for me is not two sticks of wood that have been nailed together. So what is my cross? Because if you look at the passage, Matthew 16, 24 says, you take up your cross and follow me. How do you recognize a cross? How do you know one when you see one? And then, on Tuesday night, we're going to talk about counting the cost. This discipleship thing, this is high stakes. This is important. This is giving up everything to follow him. Am I really ready to make that commitment? We're going to talk about someone who had to wrestle with that particular question and learn some lessons. And then Wednesday night, the joy of discipleship. There are blessings and joys that come from a crucified life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What I hope to accomplish through this series of lessons is I hope that it helps all of us to reflect on our relationship with the Lord. I hope that it helps all of us to reflect on the fact that I need to know who I believe Jesus is. I need to remember what his mission is. And then I need to be committed to working with and walking with him every day of my life. Working with God, going to the nations, sharing the glory of God and the grace of God and the majesty of God with people who need to hear it and need to see it. Any questions, any comments as we close? Thank you very much for your kind attention. You are dismissed.